Now, we're in a series um, that we called The Walk, where we're actually just really practically looking at what are the practices uh, of our Christian faith? What are some of the things that we do and why do we do them? And today, specifically, I want to talk to you about rest. I want to talk to you about Sabbath. And I know for a lot of you, uh, between work and family and kids and sports and extended family, I bet you come into church on a day like today after a sunny weekend like we've had, and you're feeling tired. See, I've actually got a friend that I was talking to that his routine is, on his way home from his office, he pulls into a parking lot that's just like a minute away from his house, and in that parking lot, he says a prayer, he drinks an uh, energy drink, because he knows that actually the most important and intense part of his day is about to begin because he's got young kids at home. And so on the way home from work, he's got to psych himself up to rise to the occasion um, because he knows he needs to have energy when it matters the most. So for all of you fellow parents out there, I see you. I see how tired you are. I see uh, you friends in this church. We live in a culture that is chronically tired, a culture that's chronically pressing, chronically going after it, chronically overworking. In fact, our culture teaches overwork as a core value, like this is what it means to be a true productive American. But see, every study out there shows that all of this overwork and busyness isn't good for us. It's bad for us really in every way. And deep down inside, we know that overwork isn't good for our families, but yet we still justify it saying things like, well, I'm really doing this for my family. You know what's terrible for your health? Healthcare professionals say all this busyness and the stress that comes along with it is one of the highest factors in our medical health and in our medical problems in our society. Get this, a recent study studying hours per day of work said that those who work 11 hours or more per day, which is a lot of you in this room, are 250% more likely to end up with a uh, diagnosis of depression or anxiety than those who work a standard eight-hour workday. And the reason for this is actually chemical. To rise to the occasion at your work environment, your body is producing uh, chemicals to help you, hormones to help you deal with the stress. And in small amounts, that's fine. But when your life is built around this constant adrenaline rush from the stress of your work environment, that actually becomes toxic to your body. But there's other reasons that we tend to overwork. One of them is the obvious reason we want to be good providers for our family. We want to take care of our family well. We love the privileges of vacation and all of these things that come along with hard work. But it's not just about stuff. In our society, our identity is often tied up in what we do, in our occupations, in our job. In fact, when you meet somebody, first question is, what's your name? What's the second question? What do you do? So we tend to exaggerate the answer to this question, right? Because our value is so attached to what we do that when people ask us what we do, I saw this ad where Pizza Hut was hiring, and Pizza Hut was hiring for the dean of pizza management. At Subway in Silverton, the sign is to come and join them on their sandwich artisan team. The garbage man who picks up your trash, his title is sanitation engineer. Really? What program did you graduate from? The front desk attendant at many places is no longer known as a front desk attendant, but they're the director of first impressions. 
Now, let me tell you the seedy side of this. Here's why. Federal employment law requires that you pay overtime to people unless they're in a management position. Management can work salaried and actually work over their contracted hours. So if you call them a manager, guess what? You can pay them less. So you see a company that's got 10 employees and they're all managers. But see, here's the bottom line. People are tired. And they want and they need so desperately rest. And so I want to look at what the Bible has to say today about rest. And I just love this phrase from the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. It says this, and this is just so beautiful. It says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest. We're going to talk about this today. Another verse, Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. Jesus says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Today I want to explore these two passages because I bet for many of you, Christianity feels like just another additive to your to-do list. That Christianity is just another thing that you've got to get done, another thing you have to attend. But according to Jesus, the core experience that he wants for us, his people, is rest. Dallas Willard, um, who I just love, says, We tend to jump into the busyness part of Christianity. We love to jump into serving and being active in the church and getting busy with spiritual disciplines, but we skip over the rest part that's crucial to actually being able to accomplish the other part. See, until we learn to rest in Christ, all of our work for Christ is going to struggle. So this is the big idea for today's message. Most mature Those most mature in Jesus are not those who are working the hardest, but those who have learned to rest in him. See, the writer of Hebrews actually ties this idea of rest to the Old Testament concept of Sabbath. So let's start there. Let's take a minute to understand what Sabbath in the Old Testament was all about. And there's really two primary texts that deal with Sabbath, and we'll look at both of those. The first one comes from the Ten Commandments, comes from when Moses is delivering the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. And here we go, Exodus 20, verses 9 through 11. Six days shall you labor and do all of your work, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth, the sea and all that is within them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." So the idea here is God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh. Now, once again, did God rest because he was exhausted? Nope, he wasn't tired. God didn't rest because he was exhausted. God rested because he set this rhythm into nature that we would work and there would be periods of rest. And so we do this. Let's look at the three main reasons in the Old Testament that the people of Israel were told to observe the Sabbath. So here's the first one. I think I titled it A. It says, to remind us that God is the point of our lives. So that was the very first reason, to remind us that God's the point of our life. We were to take a day to recognize that God didn't create us so that we could accomplish a whole bunch of tasks, but that we could enter into a loving relationship with God. See, Sometimes the challenges of life can cause us to disconnect from the real purpose that we were actually created. 
which is actually the quickest way to become really tired and miserable. You were not created by God to have a job. You were created by God to have a relationship with God. And on the Sabbath day, we were supposed to be reminded of this truth, that we were not created for the work that we do, but that we were created to belong to God, to be alive in God. So, we were created not to do, but to be, to be in relationship with God. Here's the next one, to remind us that God is the provider of our lives. God's the provider of our life. In many ways, taking a day off, if you think about it, was super inconvenient, especially if you lived in ancient Israel. This was a a society that survived day in and day out. Crops had to be brought in. Animals had to be tended to. They had to deal with these realities. And to take one day out of the seven-day week, every single week off, was crazy. No other society on the earth did this at that time. They were just trying to survive. They were just trying to get ahead. And God commands them, you're not going to do it like that. One day a week, you are going to take off. God commanded his people because he reminded them that in the end, the responsibility for their provision was not in their work, but in God himself. So he had them cut their productivity by a seventh, even though what they needed to bring in, because here's the Sabbath principle, the principle of the Sabbath. If they would be obedient to God, he would make their six days more productive than if they worked seven. If they would be obedient and give this day aside kind of like a tithe, he would bless the what was left and they would be more productive in six than they would have seven. He would meet their needs. You see, God has set the world up to work this way. And you know what? One of the things we need to be reminded of is God actually has us play a role in our provision. In fact, he says, six days you shall labor. He's telling his people, I want you to work. The provision that we experience in our life mostly comes provided by the work that we do. Money typically doesn't, at least for me, just appear out of nowhere, right? Typically, you go to work, you earn a check, and that money comes in. But here's what can happen. We can start to believe that I'm the source of my money. It's all about me. Instead of seeing that, no, though it comes, the provision comes from work, the ability to work comes from God. And all of it belongs to God, and all of it is by God and from God. God is the one that bears the responsibility. So we take a day off to declare that God's responsible. See, Sabbath was a real declaration of trust. They didn't do it because everything was done. They did it because God promised them that if they were obedient, he would make up for the rest. Here's the second place that we see um, Sabbath talked about in Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15. It says, observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days shall you labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or female servant, or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and female servants may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So here... 
The Sabbath day was also, they're told, that it's a day to reflect on their salvation. So it's, the next one is to remind you that God is the Savior of your life. To reflect on this fact that God is the Savior of your life. To remind us that the very greatest need that we have or that ancient Israel had. Remember, they were enslaved in Egypt. And there was nothing they could do to get out of that reality. In fact, when God came and started to deliver his people, which role did the people play in the, ex- in the exit from um, from Egypt. What did they do? Did they help with the 10 plagues? Nope. Did they part the Red Sea? Nope. God did all of the work. They were rescued, as this says, by God's mighty hand. Moses was told, I want you and my people to stop for a day and reflect on that truth. Reflect that I am your saver. Reflect that I am your redeemer. Reflect that I am the one, God, who brought you out of your captivity. And these three things that God was doing here in these different areas, we were supposed to reflect on these. That God is the point, that God is our provider, and that God is our savior. Now, I want to look to Hebrews now again and see actually how all of this Old Testament Sabbath stuff was all pointing us to Jesus, okay? So here we go, Hebrews 4, 8 through 10. For if Joshua, now Joshua is the guy who's Moses' successor, who followed Moses as the leader of the people of Israel, the one who took hold of the promised land. says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. So the Sabbath that Moses and Joshua oversaw for the people of Israel was not actually providing for them the ultimate rest that we get to enjoy, but was pointing them towards Jesus. Same way the sacrificial system wasn't atoning for their sin in the same way it was a symbol of that, of what Jesus would accomplish, so is true of Sabbath. So let's look at three ways real quick here that Jesus provides us rest and three things we can say about Christ that if you have this truth and you uh, believe these things and have received these things, then you too can have rest. And here's the first one. Christ is my righteousness. Thank you, Jesus. See, the ultimate way that Christ is our Sabbath is that he saved us. And just like Israel, God accomplished this all by himself. He took our sin. He took our sorrow. He made um, our sin and sorrow, and he put them on Jesus. He bore the weight of our sin and shame on Calvary, and he suffered and died alone. Now, there's a lot of things that we cooperate together with God to do, but salvation is not one of them. Jesus didn't give us an instruction manual with explanation on how to save ourselves. He accomplished it and said, all you have to do is believe this and receive this. See, at the cross, Jesus said, it is finished, not I've got the ball rolling, I've got it started, now you do the rest. See, Jesus accomplished our salvation by dying in our place. And all we are called to do is receive this as a free gift. Hebrews 4.10, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested 
from his works as God did from his. See, this doesn't mean that we cease to do good works. Of course not. As Paul would say, that, no, that's not the point. What it means is that our works no longer are the way that we obtain our salvation. We can rest from works that try to position ourselves before the Lord as pure. And that gives us a rest. Because we no longer have the pressure of thinking that salvation is something we can obtain on our own. But it's a gift from God. Boy, that changes everything. And that leads us to number two. Christ is my identity. Christ is my identity. Through my salvation, Christ has given me a new identity in Him. And I am no longer a stranger and an orphan before God. We are now made, this is mind-blowing stuff, we are now sons and daughters adopted by God. The Bible says we are friends of Christ. And as His child and as His friend, we have been given specific gifts and access to the kingdom of God. Each one of us. God has done this for us, and it's a much better status than the people of Israel enjoyed as slaves living under the thumb and the oppression of the Egyptians. Now, we are sons and daughters, Hebrews 4.10, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from him. I'm reading it over and over for a reason, as God did from his. No longer do we have to labor for our identity. We can do nothing to earn this, friends. It is the grace of God given to us. We are His. We belong to Him. The Bible says we have a new identity in Christ. You are chosen by God. You are a son and daughter, and He has a plan for your life. In Christ, there is nothing you can do that will make Him love you more, and there's nothing you can do that will make Him love you less. Isn't that wonderful? I just... Sit in that for a second. That's who you are in Christ. You are chosen. You are appointed. He is all we need for everlasting joy. If you have his approval, then you don't need anyone else's. See, for a long time, I found my identity in the work that I did. So my identity went up and down. If my work was good, if I preached a good sermon, I felt pretty good about myself when I got home. If I preached a clunker, then by the time I got home, I was feeling pretty down on myself. Because I felt I needed to carry the responsibility of all of this, my identity was fluid. Some days I was good, some days I was bad. My identity was wrapped up in my success. And it was a success I was creating for myself. So there's always that question. Have I done enough? Have I been good enough? Have I worked hard enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I read my Bible enough? Have I done the things enough that God will truly love me and I can make him proud? But friends, this is a huge life point and I want you to write this one down because this is important. Apart from Christ, you will work even when you're resting. But with Christ, you can rest even while you're working. He flips this whole thing on its head. It's not about you earning your identity. He says, nope, you're mine. I love you. I chose you. You're my kid. And there's nothing you can do to change that. That leads us to number three. Christ, my security. See, God had said to Israel, if I rescued you when you were helpless and you were slaves, 
Why would I not help you now that you are my beloved children, my sons and daughters? And I want you to take a day to think about that. I want you to remember for that day on the Sabbath day that I chose you, that I saved you, that I brought you out. Now, in the early church, we know that they shifted from Sabbath day being on Saturday. They began to recognize their day where they met together as the church on what they called the Lord's Day, which was Sunday because that was the day that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so to recognize that their salvation came uh, purchased by the resurrection of Jesus on a Sunday, they said, let's use that day as our new day. But see, on that day, they were told that they needed to reflect on these same things. God didn't spare his own son to save us. Now that I'm his beloved child, won't he freely give us all things? So see, the Sabbath was fulfilled in Christ. Christ my righteousness. Christ my identity. Christ my security. But just because the Sabbath has been fulfilled doesn't mean that we need to stop practicing the principles of Sabbath today in our lives. You see, I believe that God actually built the Sabbath principle into the very fabric of creation. That it's actually one of the things that he spoke before the Ten Commandments. It's one of those things from the very beginning that God has told us that we are to remember, the Sabbath. And because we are trusting God, friends, what's, what taking a day off does is it says, I'm not going to trust myself, but I'm going to trust you. In fact, you don't have to do just one day. You can have Sabbath principle playing out in your life on a daily basis. This is something that we can learn to embrace. And I would tell you, my dad uses this statement a lot. If you are burning the candle at both ends, you are not as bright as you think you are. And the truth is, friends, you are working yourself literally to death. And it's important that we as God's people recapture this understanding that God wants us to rest, that he wants us to build margin into our life so that we can truly rest. I heard a pastor named Tony Miller speak a message about really abiding in Jesus. And he said this about the Sabbath that I thought was so helpful. He said, Sabbath is not about doing nothing, but about doing the right things with great intention. And he suggested a little outline that I'm going to use here for you in the remaining time that I think is something that if you took this home, you could actually practice for yourself and learn how, because let me just tell you, life is busy. And some of you have made it way too busy. Some of you have allowed, I'm just going to speak the truth, kids' sports and activities and life to take over your life to the point where you are spiraling out of control, just trying to keep up with the daily calendar. You've got that calendar on your wall. I see you. Calendar with all the stuff. And you're just running from one thing to the next. And we need to learn. How can we slow down? So here's the first thing. And this is important. Number one is we relent. So what's that mean for you? It means we have to stop. There's got to be a point in our week that we stop. That we're not thinking about work that we stop thinking about the workload and what we have to do, that we stop writing that next week's proposal in our mind, that we stop reading the articles that are constantly showing up on our social media stream, that we stop thinking about the person we need to email or the person we need to call, that we stop checking our phones. 
we stop, we cease, we relent. As your pastor, there's something I really, really believe we need to make into a habit. There needs to be a time where you get off of your phone every single week, where you turn it off or leave it behind or change your settings. But you're going to have to be intentional about this because I can already hear my own, oh, I can't do that. What if this happens? Right? Oh, I can't do that. What if, what if this happens? We need to figure this out because you are constantly being sucked back into the rabbit hole. And then you're working again. Even when you're on vacation, you're not really unplugging. Here's the next thing. We need to rest. Now, when I say rest, here's the thing. Rest does not mean do nothing. Do nothing is not restful for me. If I do nothing, like I'm miserable, okay? But I know that there are some things that I do that put more fuel into my tank than they take out. Okay, so for you, that may be a hike. For you, that may be a cup of good coffee. For you, that may be sleeping in. For you, that may be a date night. For you, that may be watching movies. For you, it's just something that allows you to fill your cup, to fill your tank. You need this, friends. You need to have ways that you rest. One of my favorite passages from Psalm 127.1 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. According to this verse, what is one of the signs of being beloved by God? Sleep. I want you to look at that right now, because I can see several of you are enjoying God's beloved rest right now. <clears throat> but friends, listen, if you, what this teaches us is when you sleep, it's, it's declaring that you trust the Lord. It, when you rest, you're saying, God has watch of the city. God has watch of the city, so I don't have to. God is the one building the house. He's the one watching the city. See, God intends that his beloved would sleep, would have rest. But I'll give you a confession. I struggle with sleep. Sleep is one of those things because of a host of different reasons with little kids and chronic pain. And then I have this thing, the busier I get, the harder I, it is for me to fall asleep because I'm running through the to-do lists in my mind. I'm thinking about the city. I'm thinking about the house. I'm thinking about all the things that need to get done. But what does God tell us? He says that we are to trust Him with the city. God wants us to lay down each night. It's like a mini Sabbath opportunity. And to remind yourself, I'm not God. I'm not responsible for all of this. So God, I'm trusting that since you want me to sleep, that you've got watch over the city. You will build your house and I will rest. At midnight, God has not appointed me to start worrying about the city. He's appointed me to sleep. And so, friends, beloved, we need to get more sleep. 
Now, I'm a geek about these things. And I was reading about sleep habits in America. And did you know that up until 1879, the average American slept 11 hours per night? Now, ask me what happened in 1879. I'm glad you asked. Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. And in 1879, suddenly we had this new wonderful convenience that we didn't need to sleep at all anymore because we could have light even at night without expending important resources. And now add into today where we have Netflix and cell phones and endless hours of just one more episode scrolling that never does anything for you but leave you exhausted. And our lack of sleep is contributing immensely to our issues. Friends, you're going to like this sermon because I'm going to tell you something. You need to take a nap every now and then. Listen, I mean it. You need to take, okay, I read a study this week that said if you take a 30-minute nap three times a week, it will cut your heart attack risk by 40%. 40%. And actually, they found that people who nap are actually more productive than their non-napping counterparts. You're like, this is the greatest sermon ever, right? You need to nap. It's important. Here's the next thing we need to do. We need to rejoice. We need to rejoice. Christians can rejoice in the Sabbath because we have a Savior who has accomplished everything we need. Every desire that propels us towards this constant grind and constant hustle in life has been met in Jesus and in His time. And it's so important. Listen, if resting is like the deep breath out, Rejoicing is the deep breath in. What are you filling yourself with? Don't just breathe out. You need something to breathe in. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be reminded of who Jesus is and how deeply he loves you. Meditate on his word. Worship with the people of God. Sing songs. Feast. Uh, join with other believers in rejoicing. Because, friends, this is how we renew and we restore our soul. The next one, number four, reflect. Reflect. One of my personal struggles that I have is to stop long enough to consider where am I at personally with God. See, it's well and good to do a bunch of work for God, but unless that work is with God, it'll never actually be fruitful. See, doing noble things for God is different than spending time with God. Thinking great thoughts about Jesus is not the same as vital communion with Him. Helping others understand the gospel is not the same thing as sitting at His feet and drinking from the wellspring of His grace and Spirit on your own. So I pray that this will help you treasure Jesus, that you will reflect, that you'll stop, that you will not just keep the grind. Some of you, even in your spiritual practices, are just grinding instead of resting to sit at the feet of Jesus. Let's read one more time Matthew 11, 28 through 30. And band, you can come back up. Jesus says, just listen to this. Breathe this in. Listen. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Then look what the next verse says. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. There's something that's just so deeply appealing about these words of Jesus. See, God's intention is not for you and I to be perpetually burnt out all the time, rushing from one activity to the next in the hope that our next action will be so glorious that finally we'll be able to settle down, we'll feel complete. God instead invites us to rest in Him because He knows that is where we will find our satisfaction. That is where we will find our joy. That is where we will find our true contentment. See, God knows our hearts are most satisfied when we rest in Him. For it is there that we discover just how deeply loved we are by God. It is there that we discover that He created us, that He redeemed us, that He desires us, that He loves us. And we can so easily convince ourselves that God's love is based on our busyness. But friends, we have to resist and cling to what is good and true that the Lord is inviting you and I today to rest. When we rest, we are acknowledging that nothing that we could ever do on our own by our own power is going to provide for us what we ultimately need. And that is just to be with the Lord. 